If you have a Bible with you, please open it to Romans chapter 8. We'll soon be reading from verses 18 through 30. If you don't have a Bible with you today, you can see uh, a black Bible, hopefully, in the pocket of the pew in front of you. And if you use that Bible, you can find Romans 8 in the passage that we will be thinking through today. Not tomorrow. You can think through it tomorrow as well. On page 888. It is true that patience is a virtue. It is a fruit of the Spirit, and therefore it is always a good thing. Waiting is not patience, and waiting can be good or bad depending on how long you wait and what you are waiting for. If you have to wait 45 minutes to get your food at White Castle, I guarantee you it will not be worth it. At Chick-fil-A, it just might be, though. So it depends on what you're waiting for. If you're waiting for four hours for a doctor to come out from the back to tell you that he has no idea what's wrong with you, and it might plague you the rest of his life, but he is uncertain, it probably wasn't worth the wait. To hear him come out and say, all will be well, would definitely be worth the wait. The longer and the more difficult the wait we have, the more important the worthiness of the thing waited for needs to be. So we, as Christians, wait for the consummation of all things. We wait for the bodily return of our Lord Jesus Christ and the coming of his kingdom. And the question then, given the fact that we will suffer in this world, Paul has already stated that we will suffer, that we are going to suffer, that it is by nature something that's going to happen in this world, whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, suffering will come to you. The question for us is, will it be worth it? For suffering, Paul begins in this passage, says, it is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This idea of worthiness that he states here in verse 18, we'll read the full passage here in just a moment, is a picture of the arm of a scale descending. To see if something was worthy, they they didn't use electric scales back in the day, so they had scales that were balanced scales. And you would put something in the left-hand side of the scale, and then to see the equal measure, the worth of the thing on the right, you would put enough in there until it balanced out. And what Paul is saying is, if you were to put all of the trials and the tribulations and the the concerns and the worries and the anxieties into the left-hand side of that scale, the glory that is going to be revealed would be more than enough to balance it out. Typically, as we go through this world, though, we feel only the weight on the one side of the scales. We see the and feel the pull of our sin. We feel the weight of our suffering. We fear the weight of persecution. And only looking on that one side, only feeling the weight of that one side, we are tempted to think that nothing could possibly balance it off, especially when we're going through the darkest of times. We understand well the concept of gravity and weightiness. We know density. The harder it is to To carry the same volume, the more dense something is, a feather is much lighter than the same amount of lead. Interestingly, most of the world that you live in is nothing but empty space. The body that you have is 90, 99% empty space. The pew that you're sitting on, the earth that you stand upon, the very foundations of the world, nothing but mostly empty space. It's hard to believe. Atoms are incredibly light and airy. We can actually pack these things down, though. So if you take something like our sun and have it go through a couple of tribulations itself, it will shrink down to about the size of a a city. 
that is an incredibly dense ball of matter. As a matter of fact, if you took just a teaspoon of a neutron star and put it on one side of a scale, it would take not one elephant, not two elephants, not ten elephants, not a hundred elephants, but somewhere north of three billion elephants to balance out those scales. It's one is not worthy of being compared to the other. That, that is the glory that we inherit. It's weighty, it's glorious, it's beautiful. And no matter the weight of the present world that we live in, whether we, we think about the worries that we have, our troubles, our fears, our apprehensions, the labors that we must put forward to battle the sin in our lives, the failures that we will undergo throughout this life, they are not worthy of being compared to the next. Paul, from verses 18 to 30, really wants to impress upon you not just the glory that will be revealed to us, but the assurance that it's coming. Let us read those verses this morning. The book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 18. There Paul writes, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await for as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. The first thing I would like to point out to you this morning is the condition of our inheritance. What is the condition of our inheritance? First, we need to state very clearly that creation will be fixed. A lot of the difficulties that we have in this life are due to the very nature of creation itself. And so when we talk about creation, it's important to retract the way that creation itself began. If you go back to Genesis 1 and you read the very beginning, God says that he creates all things, but the earth itself was formless and void. And the rest of the chapter and the six days of creation are going through fixing the formlessness and fixing the void that is there. So 
The first day he creates the heavens. The second day he creates the sky and water. And on the third day he creates land. God is fixing the fact that it was formless. He is providing form and organizing it. He is giving boundaries to things and definitions to things. On the fourth, the fifth, and the sixth day then, he is fixing the fact that it is void. He is populating it. He populates the heavens with stars. He populates the heavens, the sky and the sea with birds and with fish. He then populates the land with beasts and cattle and creeping things. And you would be all right if having read through creation for the first time, thinking this must be where we stop. After all, this, this has fixed the problems. It was formless and it was void and now it has form and now it is no longer void, it is populated and, and we are just one of the created beasts. We are just one of the things that go along the land. We are nothing different than mammals, just a particular species of that. But God's word goes on and does something very particular with human beings and he says, let us make man in our image. So far, all of creation has been the work of God, but it has not been imprinted with his image. But now, all of creation, in all of creation, there will be one thing that carries the very image of God, and that will be man. And what are we to do? We are to do the very thing that God did in sort of a minor key. We are to keep the form. We are to keep the rule. We are to watch over the garden to make sure it looks like he had wanted it to look, and we are to multiply and fill it to keep the form, and to make it less void. We are rulers over creation. We stand above creation. And so it makes sense that as mankind falls in chapter 3, as we disobey God, we throw the entire cosmos into an upheaval. As man falls, so falls creation. Just as we have fallen into death, so creation falls into futility. It grows it stands for a second, and it dies. It groans with volcanoes, it groans with tornadoes, it grows with plagues and cancer and trouble, and it was never meant to be that way. When God curses the ground in Genesis 3, he is not just telling Adam, listen, it's by the sweat of your brow that you're going to make food. He's, he's not giving us that particular picture because it's only important for farmers, what he means is, this land that should have made your life easy, that would have yielded itself at your very touch, will now fight you tooth and nail. Adam and his descendants are going to have to fight to get out of the land, the very thing the land would have owed them in a right relationship with God. Text that Paul says, it is awaiting the creation is longing groans waiting for the revealing of us as sons of God because once man is redeemed then creation can go back to living and working the way it ought to have worked creation was subjected to futility not willingly but in the hope that it will be set free from bondage to corruption to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God he says Creation is backwards, it's wrong, it's upside down right now, but there will come a day when God will set it aright again. The days that we go through today will not be how it always is. There is a better day coming when creation won't be against us but for us, bringing its good to us as we need it, no longer filled with natural disasters or diseases or hardships. How often does creation actually make you yourself? grown. 
How often do you step outside and say, oh, it's January. The answer is every single day. It was negative three yesterday. Every day. There are natural disasters all over the place. The world is filled with disease. There are raccoons in your garbage. There's disease in your veins. There's ice on your steps. There's mold in your homes. Everywhere you go, the world is working against you. These difficulties are so natural that we hardly even think of them. This is just the normal course of life. You know why people dream of living on a desert island? They dream of living on an island in the tropics where no one is because they think in their minds that this is where nature will work perfectly. Because it is a drag and it is a groan on us. It is a difficulty on us. A desert island won't be any better than here. Well, that's... Okay, let's not lie. A desert island would be a lot better than here. But it would still have a huge number of troubles and difficulties for us. Even in this fallen world, we see such traces of the glory of the beauty of creation. That desert island, we recognize the goodness of it. Watching a sunrise come up over the lake, feeling warm, sweet spring breezes. But in the future, those pieces of goodness, those little glimpses will not be small glimpses at all. They won't be brief moments, but they will be an ever-present and ever-new reality. So friends, put up with the sufferings of this world. The labor that you put in, the sufferings that you endure will not be worth comparing to the goodness of creation then. But not only that, not only will creation be fixed, our bodies will be fixed. Paul says in verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly. We, we ourselves know the difficulty that living in our bodies have. We carry sin with us. We want to be done with this flesh. This is exactly the kind of cry that Paul had back in Romans 7 when he worked hard to do the law. He had a mind to want the law, but he could not carry it out. Who will deliver me from this body of death? There's a day coming when the mortality and the effects of the fall in our bodies will be done away with, we will no longer be weak and frail and prone to sin. There's a day coming when our bodies will be made perfect, and they will match perfectly with our desires. No longer will we need to give an amen to Jesus when he said in the garden, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak, for your flesh will no longer be weak. This is, you might say, the final step of our adoption. We have something of our adoption now. We can cry out as children of God, Abba, to God speaking in the very name that Christ would have named the Father, knowing that he is our Father as well through Christ. But we await the full clothing of our bodies as his son, bodies that befit the children of God. And notice how far Paul goes. Paul goes so far as to say that this is the very hope of our salvation. This is the hope of our salvation. How much do we downplay the resurrection? We don't downplay Jesus' resurrection. That's super important. But we greatly downplay the importance of our resurrection. This is the hope of our salvation. Not simply that we are just forgiven. Not simply that, that God just says, don't worry about your sins anymore, but he will give us bodies that will no longer have sin in them. That our souls and our bodies will work as one, perfect in harmony, to do the will of God. 
These bodies will be glorious and fit for our salvation. They will be sinless. They will be immortal. And they will indeed be glorious. They will be fit those who are honestly made in the image of God. And truth be told, that picture of us being made in the image of God is really interesting. Look around. Walk through Beverly Hills in Miami. Walk through Walmart. And tell me how glorious the image of God in man looks. We know that after the fall, it's hidden. We don't see the glory of God in one another. We don't see the glory of God in our faces and in our bodies. But there will be a day. There will be a day that as hidden as it is now, it will be as obvious then. You don't see it yet. That's why we hope for it, Paul says. There is a glory that indwells you, the glory of the Spirit. There is not the glory of your body yet, but there will be a day when you will have the fullness of the glory of God. You will partake with Him, as we will see. The character of our inheritance is good, it's wondrous, and friends, it is worth waiting for. Not just waiting for, but suffering for. Indeed, in grasping for this and suffering for it, you will find that the glory of the new creation in which we live with our new bodies will not even be worth comparing for it. No matter how hard you strain and stretch yourself, no matter what you must endure, no matter the difficulties that God sends your way, when you see the full revelation of your body in glory resurrected, when you see the goodness of creation, you will say, oh, I would do it again and again and again and again. The question that we might have after hearing that and feeling the pull of that is one of failure. What, what, if, what if I honestly attempt to do that? What if I strenuously move myself to put to death the sins of my body? What, what if I have to endure much suffering in this world because I want to do what is right when I could just cheat and get away with it by doing that which is evil? What if I spend all my time trying to do good just to be trampled on and trampled on and trampled on and in the end there is no justice? What if I work hard to do what Christ and God are calling me to and in the end I fade? Would it not have been better to just give in? To eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. In one sense, Paul's answer is yes, it would be better. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians as though if there's not something better coming to us, we should eat, drink, and be merry. We, we are most to be pitied of all the men in the world because we are working for something that this world cannot give to us. So that means that Paul then turns to our second point, which is the certainty, the certainty of our inheritance. That is done first through the work of the Spirit. Verse 26 is odd. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Like what? How, how is the work of the Spirit here in the same way? How, how does this work just like our groaning, our, our wanting bodies that are better fit for our salvation? How does this work like the groaning of creation? How is it like that? What Paul means, I think, is it's the same way that our future inheritance pushes for our endurance through the tribulation of the world. The, the work of the Spirit does the same. The work of the Spirit is to intercede for us that we might get what we need in order to persevere through this world. 
the point of the passage here is not that the groanings that we had before are so deep and so inexpressible that the Spirit takes those groanings and expresses it to God. So you've had times in your life where you have been so angry, you didn't know how to put it into words. The English language just doesn't have words for the amount of anger or the frustration or the love or the mercy that you felt at any one point in time. It's like trying to explain the color blue to a blind man. Like what, what words can you put together to, to paint that kind of a picture? That's not what Paul is saying here. It's not that the Spirit perhaps can't do that and take your sort of groanings and put them into words to God and to help intercede for you that way. It's not with the form of our prayer, but with the content of our hearts. What Paul says here is we don't know what to pray for. It's not that we don't know how, but that we don't always pray for what we need to pray for. We might not hear the Spirit interceding for us, asking the right things for us, for He knows what we truly need, but nevertheless, He is doing it. We often ask for things that are good, but are actually to our detriment. We don't know that. It's not a matter of sin. We often ask God to take things from us, for God to give things to us, for God to help this person in such a way. And we don't know exactly why God is doing what he's doing, but we have seen time and time again in our own lives how we ask for God things in prayer, and those things are not given to us. Is it that we lack faith? No, friend, it is simply this, that God is unwilling to do things for you that aren't good, no matter how much you might ask for them. Paul prayed for the thorn to be removed from him three times. We have no idea what the thorn is. Three times of dedicated and fervent prayer before God, take this thing from me. God said, the third time, finally answering him, no, Paul, I, I won't be removing it. I don't know what the thorn was. If it's a metaphor, I doubt it was a literal thorn, although that, in the end, that would be tremendously funny given all of the scholarship that's been done on it and speculation at the very least, it is something that is intensely painful. And Paul is begging God to take it away. God says, no, it's important that it stays. It will humble you. And anyways, my grace is sufficient for you. It's not that everything that happens to us, it's not that all of the events that occur to us are things that are good in and of themselves. We know that that's not true. And certainly, they are not all pleasant. But what Paul is arguing here is that even the worst of them will be turned by God for our own good. God refuses to give us what is easy over giving us what is good. We spend our time praying for things that we don't need, praying for things that are detrimental to our growth in Christ. Oftentimes we pray to escape the very things that will drive us closer to Him. So the Spirit intercedes. The Spirit, who knows the very mind and the will of God, intercedes for us. And He lifts up prayers to God on our behalf, from us, for us, on our behalf, so that the Father might give us that which is good. We know very well that we oftentimes don't know the will of God. I don't know why you get sick. I don't know why some people are taken too soon. 
in our eyes. Why some people will go through this life without much suffering and why other people will suffer to no end. We don't understand why these things are. And we can't give pat answers for them. But we do know that the Spirit is working on our behalf so that we get everything we need to be conformed into the image of Christ in this world. The very Spirit of God works in us to pray the things that we ought to pray that we don't. It is His work. They are His prayers. And the Father is happy to grant His wish because they pray, the Spirit prays, and the Father answers in the will of God. And that brings us then from the work of the Spirit to the plan of the Father. Verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. It's for those who love God. Shouldn't think that what Paul means there is, if you love God, you really strain your heart to love Him, you, you try to love Him all the more, then God will give you good things, Right? as though he's reciprocating your love to him. Paul means what he says, for those who love God, God will indeed work everything out for the good, but then he clarifies what he means, for those who are called according to his purpose. If Paul could quote John here, he would say exactly what John says in 1 John 4. We love God because he first loved us. We are called according to the purpose of God. Because those whom he foreknew... He knew who you would be. He knew who you would turn into. He knew the rigors of your life. He knew every contour and every turn that you would take in your life. God is all-seeing and all-knowing. He knew who you were. He foreknew you, not just in a general way, but He foreknew you in salvation. He foreknew that you would come to Him in salvation because He predestined you to be conformed to the image of His Son. Father knows all that happens. and He knows that sometimes the very best way to conform us to the image of our Savior is through the suffering that we must endure just as He endured suffering. The point isn't that we must endure suffering for suffering's sake. It is the absolute assurance that Paul desires to provide for us. If you suffer, it is not because God is not working out His plan if you suffer, it is not because God is not doing good things through it. If you suffer, there is a reason and a point to it. You might not see it, you might not know it, and it might not be until glory and thousands of years into glory before you truly get it. But nevertheless, God has a reason and a purpose for everything that he brings upon you, friends. It is not that we simply endure random, haphazard suffering, but the suffering that we endure is surgical and perfect. It is designed by God for our good. This last verse, verse 30, is sometimes called the golden chain. One thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. It marks out the plan of God from the first to the last, moving us from those who were against Him to being called, to being justified, and to being glorified. Paul starts with this idea of predestination, a fact that he will go to some length to defend in Romans 9, but nevertheless introduces here. Paul will be quite clear about what this means there. It is not the simple fact that God knows everything. 
It is not the simple fact that God has looked down the corridors of time, has seen you commit yourself to Jesus Christ and said, oh, there, there it is. Okay, so he is one. We'll mark him down. He is, he is going to come to faith. It is not the simple fact that God has elected Christ and that all who come by faith in him are elect, but he doesn't know who those are or he doesn't choose who those are. I think the better way of saying it is faith is the result of God's predestination. God's predestination is not the result of faith. God chooses those who will come to faith. What was said to Israel in Deuteronomy is just as true as it is to us. Moses stands on the mountain and he looks at those people and he reminds them that there is absolutely nothing in you that endeared you to God. God didn't look at you and think, what a beautiful people, I should save them, or what a helpless people, I should save them, or what a magnificently large number of people that I should save. Rather, Moses reminds them, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord simply set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. Why did he set his love on you? Because he loves you. It has nothing to do with you. There's no conditions for you to meet. He didn't set his love on you because you believed in him. He didn't set his love on you because you did the right thing that one time. He didn't set his love on you because he saw potential in you. He set his love on you solely because he's a gracious God who did that thing. It was God's choice, God's doing. So God predestines them, and then he calls them. It is clearly not the general call that goes out with the gospel. As the sower goes out and sows the seed everywhere, it falls on rocky path, it falls on hard tread-down path, it falls on thorns and thistles, and it falls on good ground. It is indeed true from our perspective that we will spread the seed of the gospel everywhere we go, that we will tell People who look like they, they're right on the edge and people who are hardened as all get out. We will spread the word of the gospel to all because we don't know where the good soil is, but God knows where the good soil is. And those whom he predestines, he calls. Jesus says, my sheep, hear my voice and follow me. If you have been predestined, you have been called. And if you've been called, he justifies you. He clears you of any wrongdoing. He says, because of the work of my son, in carrying the guilt and the sin of your life, you are now free from punishment. You are free from penalty. You are innocent of all charges that could be brought against you. They have been paid for. They are over. You have done many evil deeds. The people of God, even their good works are nothing but filthy rags. And yet, because of the work of Jesus, we are declared innocent on all charges. Our penalty has been taken up by Jesus, our sacrificial lamb. And all of this is to drive to the one point that if he has predestined you and he has called you and he justifies you, he will glorify you. It's interesting that Paul put this in the past tense. He didn't really put it in the past tense. There's not a past tense in the Greek, but nevertheless... We translate it with the past tense because it fits with all the other words that are in the past tense. And there's something of the assurance there. We are not glorified as we are. Paul has just talked about the fact that we hope and wait for the glory of the sons of God. We hope and wait for the glory of our adoption. We don't have it yet, but he can talk about it as in the past tense because it is as good as sealed. If he's called you, 
If you are predestined, he has justified you, you will indeed be glorified. And our glorification is wrapped up in God's own glory. It's not a glory of our own. Glory of our own would be weak. It would be barely anything for you to hang on to. No reason for you to suffer in this world for your own glory. Because the sufferings of this world are more than worth comparing to any glory that you can gain for yourself. But compared to the glory of God, it's more than worth suffering for. We get to partake to share in the very glory of God. Peter puts it this way. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. That is a crazy sentence. We are creatures. We are not creators. There is an incredibly large gap between one who can make all things by the speaking the word of his mind, who can create out of nothing, and those creatures who have been created from that. That gulf is unsurmountable, and yet Peter can say, we partake through the work of Jesus Christ in the divine nature. The glory of God is something that we partake of. We, too, will be weighty and glorious, magnificent, powerful, and beautiful creatures. We will partake in the very glory of the transcendent and all-powerful God. For those who know what that God is like, for those who know the glory of that God, this is the teaspoon of the neutron star. What, what, whatever in this life befall you, there would not be worth that. This is how you are going to be carried through. Paul's answer to the inevitable suffering that all believers undergo in this world is to remind people that you will partake in the very glory of God. Listen, how is that supposed to keep you? Ask yourself a very practical question. How is that collocation of words supposed to keep me? What in the world am I supposed to do with that? It won't keep you. It won't keep you if you don't see the glory of God. You know why we we spend time talking about God? People want to cry out about practical things. We, we don't want doctrine. We want, we want practical things. What are we supposed to do in this world? What are we supposed to do to have better marriages? What are we supposed to do to have better finances? What are we supposed to do to be better parents? What are we supposed to do to be better spouses? What are we supposed to do to be better employees at work? How can we do all these things? Why do we have to talk about all this philosophy and theology, and why do we have to talk about these things? Why do, we, why do we care about the Trinity when we need this sort of practical instruction? I defy you. Honestly, 
to find anything that's more practical than that. Find something that's more practical than a vision of God. When we speak about the Trinity and speak of His glory and speak of His ineffable nature and speak of three gods, or one God with three persons, speak about the love that they display for us on the cross and how they glorify themselves forever, eternally. Speak of how in majesty and in power all things are done perfectly by this God, how glorious and magnificent and mighty and powerful He will be. And then to say, by the way, you partake in that So hold on to your sufferings. It's worth it. There's no amount of to-do lists that will ever make it worth it. That is why we teach theology. Because the more you apprehend the glory of God, the easier the sufferings get. Jesus was able to endure more than any one of you ever will. He did it not without tribulation. He did it not without difficulty, but he did it because he himself knew the very glory of God. So know that God gives great assurances to us. Not only is the character of your inheritance beautiful and good, but the certainty of it is sure and true. God will accomplish what he has set out to do. He will turn all of your groaning into glory. The pains of creation will be overcome. The frailty and the weakness of your body will be undone. The spirit which is given to us as the first taste of this glory is interceding for you so that God's will will be done in your life and God's will being done will make you glorious in the end. Let this be your vision. Grasp hold of God's glory by faith. See his beauty, his power, and his majesty. For that is the vision that will hold you up. That is the very thing that will give you strength to persevere through any trial and any difficulty. Let us pray. Father, show yourself to our hearts. Give us an understanding that passes the knowledge of your goodness and might. We ask for this because my, my words are of little use to do these things. Perhaps even if we could collect the greatest poets with perfect understanding, we might get closer, but we know that we would never be able to craft words in the right order, in the right pictures, to rightly and fully communicate the gravity, the beauty, the power, and the joy of your glory. Certainly, certainly I, I have not done that. But we pray by your aid that we can grasp enough of that glory to give us hope and despair and faith in our storms. So show yourself to us today, Lord, that your will may be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you will stand and sing with us, Be Thou My Vision.